The scripture tonight is coming from 1 Corinthians 7, beginning through 10 and continuing through 16. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For now, for how do you know, brother or sister, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Please be seated. Well, I'm certainly happy to be with you this evening. I'm very grateful for the presence of everyone. And for those of you who are online, I'm very happy that you're with us tonight. We had a, a little unusual Sunday morning service, but... Uh, we have the facilities back together now, and we're very grateful and thankful for that, and thankful that we can be back together at this time. Thank you for the wonderful singing that we've had, and I, I do appreciate the fine way in which you enter into our worship service and sing these beautiful songs, and we have such fine direction by these men, and for the prayers, thank you for that and for the scripture reading tonight. I'm sure we're ready to enter into this portion of our worship service, and you and I have been studying about difficult texts of the Bible. And I deal with two tonight that has been submitted to me, and I have solicited um, your questions and your texts and, and uh, passages that you'd like for me to deal with, and so we'd be happy to do that. If there are others out there that you would like for me to deal with, uh, please write them down. It's best that you write them down and hand them to me, simply because I'll forget if you don't. And so that's the best way for me to remember what you're asking me to do. We have dealt with some pretty weighty subjects so far. We have looked at passages like, um, well, Romans 11, 25 through 29, about all Israel being saved. That's a difficult text and a difficult section of the Bible, but we've dealt with that. And then we dealt with passages like James chapter 5, 14 through 16, and, and the anointing with oil issue that we discussed uh, very carefully. We looked at 2 Peter chapter 3, and uh, particularly verse 16, where Peter writes about Paul wrote things that were hard to understand, and we talked about that. And we have looked at lessons on the simplicity, the beauty, and the understanding of the Word of God. We've covered a lot of material in discussing difficult texts of the Bible. One important subject that we covered and talked about, are there contradictions in the Bible? And we drew the conclusion from the evidence available that there are no contradictions in the Bible. There, 
we can have full faith and confidence in the Bible and full faith and confidence in God's Word. And so it's an interesting study. Not only is it an interesting study, but it's a vital study for us to consider these difficult texts. And as we've said a number of times, you know, it's only natural to expect some passages that are hard to understand because God knows all that can be known. He's the great God of heaven and earth. And He knows us better than we know ourselves. And He knows all that can be known. Therefore, it's only natural there might be some difficult text to deal with. And we are. We're dealing with them. And I don't mean to suggest the idea that I understand everything about the Bible. If you were to ask me that, I'd be the first one to say, no, I do not. I, I'm still growing and studying and trying to understand it as best I possibly can. So we continue with our discussion of difficult texts of the Bible, and I deal with two tonight. And that's all we'll deal with at this particular time. We've read the passage already as a text, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But before I get into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there's been another suggestion that I want to uh, comply with, and that's out of 1 John chapter 5. And so we're going to turn our Bible to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to look at about verses 6 through 9 and uh, uh, oh, 10 and 11, I suppose, in that particular instance. And it's an interesting question, and it's one that naturally would come up. And I'll identify the difficulty in just a moment. Before I do, I'd like to outline just a little bit for us about the book of John, 1 John, in the latter portion of our Bible. And of course, written at the close of the first century. By this particular time, when you read these books, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, even the book of Colossians, it might even come up in the book of 2 Corinthians. This pre-Gnostic view of Christ is beginning to come about. Now, every now and then you hear me reference Gnosticism. I don't spend a lot of time with that in the pulpit. Gnosticism was an ancient heresy. It was a view that the physical features of Christ were only but a form, that Christ did not actually come in physical form. And it really was a position which is full-blown in the second and third Christian century. And in doing so, it is a position which denies the divine nature of Jesus. Now, it's not my intention to go into an analysis of Gnosticism. That would be something for another class, another venue, rather than our worship tonight. But that's certainly involved in his thinking when you come to 1 John chapter 5. And he's saying, remain faithful to the deity of Christ. Remain faithful to the divine nature of Christ. Don't give up on the nature of Jesus, the integral nature and fundamental nature of Jesus. Notice how he begins the chapter. You see, I'm working my way into the difficulty. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So right off the beginning in this chapter, he's saying, you must believe in God, you must believe in Christ, and you must have a faith, a confident trust and faith in Jesus Christ, and not take into, buy into this pre-Gnostic heresy that's beginning to raise its ugly head. By the time he gets on down to about verse 5 and 6, we see this particular matter coming to the front. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, I think that's an important passage. And it's one that I would like to explain in this fashion. And that is this attraction that the world has. Who is it that overcomes the world? 
And it's almost as if John is talking about the world having some kind of magnetic kind of attraction which is pulling us away from God and pulling us away from Christ. The allurements of the world and the temptations of life and the views of this world which are antithetical to the teaching of the Bible. It's almost as if the world has a, a magnetic kind of pull pulling us away. But he's warning us against that. We've got to overcome that pull that is pulling us away, the temptation, if you will, that's causing us to leave Christ. But there are two words that are referenced here that also are very important for us in our understanding. Who is it that overcomes the world? You see it, that magnetic type of pull? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Notice how he references Jesus as Son, referencing his humanity of God, referencing his deity and his divine nature. He's both fully human, he's both fully God. Some have described him in the fashion of being the God-man, and that's a pretty good way to describe it, the God-man. And so you have these two terms, a set of terms, which come up for us in our particular passage. Who is it that overcomes the world? I'm still on verse 5. Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one, this is he who came by water and blood. Now here are two more words. He gave us those two words with regard to Son and God, and now he's giving us two more words, water and blood. And when he talks about Jesus coming by means of water, he's talking about the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan by John. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus goes from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. And you'll remember the story how that John forbade him and said, I need to be baptized of thee, why comest thou unto me? But John forbade him. Jesus said, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus was baptized to fulfill the command of God to fulfill righteousness, not because he was guilty of sin, not because he had to repent of any sin, like you and I had to do. I had to repent of sin, and I had to be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, for forgiveness. But that's not the case with Jesus. But that's what he's referencing here, this Matthew chapter 3, historical reference of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan by John. And so he says, now this is he who came by water. And that's the reference to the water and blood. Now, for him to reference Jesus as to the matter of his blood, he's mentioning and referencing Jesus as to the matter of his sacrifice, his death on the cross. You remember it was John who said in John chapter 1, verse 9, Behold, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. He's referencing the sacrificial nature of Jesus, his death, and the blood that was shed. And as Christians, you and I, we have so much at stake in regard to the matter of the blood of Jesus. It means so much to us. Sometimes we'll sing the, the hymn, What Can Wash Away My Sins? Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. And so when he's referencing the blood here, he's referencing the sacrifice of Jesus himself. But there's another one that comes to the scene of action nor by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. Now we're beginning to work into the problem passage and the difficulty that we need to consider. The three that testify, he's introduced for us this matter of the Spirit. 
The Spirit, of course, was given to the apostles on the day of Pentecost. There was that outpouring of the Spirit. You'll remember Jesus promised that to them. John chapter 14, John chapter 15, John chapter 16 is sort of a section of Scripture there where Jesus is comforting the troubled heart of these disciples. Now they realize Jesus is going to be leaving them, and he's explaining to them how he's going to send the Comforter, one that will come and stand beside them. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles in Acts chapter 2. We see the fulfillment of that promise in the life of the apostles the promise which Jesus gave. And so now he references the Spirit here. And he's talking about the fact that he is a witness. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. Now you might have witness there in your translation. This English Standard Version that I'm working out of tonight has testify. And the idea is they bear witness to or they testify to the fact of the deity of Christ. Don't give up on that. Don't give up on the deity of Jesus Christ. There is by, he is by water, by blood, and by the Spirit. And the Spirit, of course, is testifying to the fact of uh, the divine nature of Jesus. And these three witnesses are testifying to the Savior's identity. And that much of what we have, even on into verse 8. But there's our problem. The last part of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8. And if you're working out of one of the older translations, such as um, the King James Version, and please don't get me wrong on that. I love the King James Version. I have preached out of the King James Version for years. I've memorized passages out of it. I've taught people out of it. And because I've taught people, people have been baptized because of that. So please don't misunderstand what I'm saying about a translation like that that I do love. But evidently, Prior to evidence, which we now have, this particular phrase crept into the text, and for that reason is included in the King James Version of the Bible. But modern translations do not include that particular phrase. The phrase that we're talking about is, for there are three that bear record in heaven. Now that does not appear in the text, and so because of a lack of textual support, Modern translations do not put that in the text, and it is appropriate not to do so. There's just no evidence of that. Greater understanding, greater archaeological discovery, greater manuscript evidence, which we now have, tells us that this particular phrase really is not included. So we're looking at 1 John chapter 5, the last portion of verse 7 in the King James Version. And the first part of chapter 5, verse 8 in the King James Version, really is not a part of the original text. Sometimes you'll have a footnote, and editors have placed footnotes at the bottom of the Bible and that sort of thing to help you understand that these particular matters really are not a part of the text itself. Now let me make a point about this. And that is, if you really want to understand the Bible, there are a number of things you're going to have to understand. You're going to have to understand something of the origin of the Bible, the inspiration of the Bible, but you're going to have to understand something of the transmission of the Bible. The transmission of the Bible is how it came to our time. And it is a wonderful story of God's divine providence whereby He brought this record, this Bible, to our day and time 
translated it in a language we can understand so that we can read it in our own language and carry it around with us. And now we're carrying it around in electronic devices and e-readers, which is an amazing thing that we have access to the Bible in that way. I'm talking about the transmission, how we got the Bible. Somebody might say, well, I understand about the origin of the Bible, and I understand about the inspiration of the Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. But how do I know that I really have the Bible? Well, that's a question of transmission. Do we have the, do we have the manuscripts? Do we have the documentation? Do we have the means by which we will look at and understand that these verses actually are part of the Bible, this verse is not a part of the Bible, and in turn we do, so much so that we can have full faith and confidence in the Bible that we are studying. Transmission. That's what this question involves itself with. How did we get the Bible? Now, if you're interested in this subject, just as I am, Neil Lightfoot wrote a book, a little paperback book. I'd encourage you to get it, and I'd encourage you to um, read it. And it's easy to read. You'd probably get it on Amazon or one of these uh, places that buy and sell things. And uh, study the historical background on how we got the Bible. It'd be an excellent read for you and something that would be very helpful for you to understand. So we understand in this regard that these three are bearing witness, identifying the divine nature of Christ and the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three, now I'm looking at verse 8, agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Now, if we're going to look at witnesses and we see honorable men who have integrity and they testify over a certain matter, we accept that. This is their sworn testimony. But now, if we will accept that, what about the testimony of God? We have the Holy Spirit. We have the testimony of the blood. We have the testimony of the water. Why, here we see these testify to the identity of Jesus. Wouldn't we give even greater credence to the testimony of God? Indeed, we would. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Now, what he's pointing out there is that if you don't believe the testimony of God and the evidence that God has given, you, in effect, are calling God a liar. <clears throat> you, in effect, are saying, no, it didn't happen that way. You're lying. But who would be willing to say that and assert that falsehood? And he's saying that because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Now, that's about the best we can do with regard to this passage in the time that we have. But it certainly is identifying us for us the problem. It identifies us why John wrote about it, because of the heresy of the pre-Gnostic system which was developing and the insistence you must continue to have faith and confidence in Jesus, the Son of God. You must believe in Him. If you reject the witness which God has given, if you reject the evidence God has given with regard to His divine Son, you're in effect making God a liar. But the one who believes... The one who acts out of faith, he has both the Father and the Son, and it's a Bible passage that really is an encouraging passage for us to remain faithful. So thank you for this um, uh, question. Thank you for the opportunity to address this matter, and you want to mark in your Bible appropriately uh, these particular passages so that you can go back and read them and carefully consider them for your own study. And if you have questions, and people do, and they talk to me, they email me, they call me, and I'm happy 
to receive every call. I'm happy to receive e every email and text, and, I, and that happens on a, a weekly basis about something that we've said or something that we've studied. <clears throat> and I am certainly happy to hear from you about this matter or any other matter. Now I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because this too was brought to my attention, and I can understand why this particular passage is of interest to individuals, because it does talk about marriage. There are certain chapters of the Bible that really speak to certain subjects. And this chapter, 1 Corinthians, speaks to the subject of marriage. So we need to give it special attention and special consideration. We need to read and understand what the Bible has to say, and we need to reason about it properly and draw the proper conclusion from it. Now, you have to understand a couple of things that's taking place in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I thought about, well, we'll just outline the chapter, but I don't think I should do that. I think I will limit myself to the discussion at hand and focus on the issue beginning at about verse 8. As he talks about the, the, the matter of marriage, and it's only natural that questions like this would come up. Remember that evidently from the reading of the text that they had sent him a letter that we do not have and that he sends them back a letter answering their questions. And what we have is the answer of Paul answering the questions. That would be nice for us to have had the question. But it's almost like listening to somebody talk on the telephone. You hear their side of the conversation, but you're not hearing somebody else on the other end of the line. But you can kind of piece it together. You know what the conversation is about by listening to this side of the conversation. And what God wanted to give us were the answers to the questions. If I had one or the other, I'd rather have the answers by far than just the questions. But here we have issues that evidently they had asked him about. And it's obvious that this would become a matter because look who you have who are Christians now at Corinth. You have a congregation of God's people, which is an amazing thing in and of itself, in a wicked pagan city like the city of Corinth, Greece. It was a wicked city, had a reputation of worldliness. While they were people who were involved in paganism and mystery type of religions, all kinds of superstitious type of pagan ideologies and idolatry. But yet these people, when they heard the word of God, they gave up their superstitious ways and their pagan beliefs. And they repented of that and they were baptized into Christ and they became Christians and it's amazing. And it speaks to the power of the gospel and the word of God. How that these people could change, go from way over here now to becoming children of God because of Christ and their belief in the gospel of Christ and a resurrected Savior. Naturally, though, because they've come out of that kind of environment, there are problems. They probably brought some of their baggage with them out of paganism. And Paul is addressing these matters, not only in this matter of chapter 7, but in other chapters of 1 Corinthians. And as he does, he straightens out, I always like to call it, their crooked thinking. They're thinking wrong about this issue. They're thinking wrong about that issue, and he's straightening it out. And, and the point of 1 Corinthians is, this is how you get it right. This is how you do it properly. This is how you're to think about that. 
And it's only natural that this matter of marriage would come up given that kind of background and the people that are now becoming Christians from a pagan background. And the question which is coming up in the first part of the matter is, what about those who are not married? What about the single person? And what about the widow or widower? What is the issue with that? And so he begins in verse 8. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. And it's sort of an expedient matter that he's talking about here. Marriage is an optional matter, you understand. And certainly given the circumstances of persecution and suffering that's being placed upon the church, it would be better if one were single, remained single, because of the circumstances of the day. Rather than have the responsibilities of a family and a spouse, it'd be better if you were single and not have to bear that responsibility also in this difficult time. And the widows, I would say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And of course he's saying, now if you really want to go ahead and get married, then go ahead and get married. And if that's what you really want to do, then of course it is perfectly fine. It is not obligatory to remain single. It is not obligatory to get married. It is an optional matter. Now God in the long ago looked at Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he caused a deep sleep to come upon Adam and he took from his side a rib. And there he formed and fashioned Eve. And he brought Eve to Adam and Adam says... This is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. She shall be called woman, for she was taken from the man. The Hebrew in that particular passage is rather expressive. The idea of the man is ish, and the idea of the woman is isha. Ish now receives isha. Ish, the man, receives the woman. And so shall a man leave his father and his mother. And the two shall cleave to one another and become one flesh. God's divine law of marriage in the very beginning. A leaving and a cleaving. But what about these difficulties that may arise? What about the problems that we face? Well, because of the circumstances, if you're single, it'd be better for you to remain single. If you're a widow or widower, it'd be better for you to remain in that particular matter. But it's not an obligatory matter if you choose to Mary, it would be better for you to that if you cannot exercise self-control, he said in the passage. We're dealing with verse 8, verse 9. Then it's best for you to go ahead and marry. And I think the passion that he's referring to is the desire that a man naturally has for a woman and the desire that a woman naturally has for a man. He says, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so go ahead and get married. The next progression in his logical step comes to us now in verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So now he's saying, if you decide to marry... It is wrong for you to leave your spouse for whatever capricious reason might come up. In other words, she burns the toast, and I don't like the way she looks at me in the morning. You are not to separate yourself from that. However, 
If it is of a necessity in a circumstance, there is a situation, a temporary type situation, whereby a husband may separate from a wife or a wife may separate from a husband on a temporary basis. It is not because of marital infidelity. That is not a part of this passage. But what he's emphasizing here is there may be such a dire circumstance where the necessity is such that a husband separates from his wife or a wife separates from her husband. But understand this fact right here. They're still married. You may separate yourself because there is such an essential nature and need to do that, whatever the difficulty might be. But remember this fact. You're still married to that person even though you separate. To the married I give this charge. Now Jesus did not speak particularly or specifically about this particular point. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying to the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. So this is a passage in which Jesus did uh, uh, speak to the matter. There's going to be in verse 12 a passage where the Lord did not speak to that matter. So let me clarify myself in verse 10. To the married I give this chart, not I, but the Lord. The Lord spoke to this particular matter. Or I heard the Lord speak about this particular matter, Matthew chapter 5 and 32, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9. If you do separate, if it is necessary. Now we're not talking about some capricious whim here. I just don't like the way you balance the checkbook. I've had it, I'm moving out. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about burning the toast or not cooking my favorite dinner on Friday night. We're talking about physical necessity. They have to depart for a reason. But you understand this. You're still married. You're still married to each other. And that's his point. But if she does, she should remain unmarried. Don't marry somebody else. You're not eligible to marry somebody else. Or else be reconciled to your husband. Reconcile this particular matter. And the husband should not divorce his wife. You're not separating this particular marriage over some matter, even though it is a necessary circumstance. I can envision some physical abusive type of situation whereby someone would have to save children and save themselves, where they might have to separate, though they have to understand the fact they're still married. They're not free to marry somebody else. Even though somebody is abusive to their spouse or abusive to the children, as terrible and sinful as that may be, that is not an excuse to get a divorce. And that's not what he's talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'm looking at verses 10 and verse 11. Now, he wants them to be reconciled in this particular matter. And that becomes our verse 12. And so I go to that and I make mention of the point that I clarified in just a moment. To the rest I say, I not the Lord. The Lord did not speak specifically about this particular matter when he was here on earth. He did the previous, but not this. He did in verse 10 and 11, but not 12 and 13. So who's doing the talking in 12 and 13? It's an inspired apostle, the apostle Paul. His word is just as binding as if Jesus were there giving it himself. This is inspired scripture. And so even though Paul is giving the discussion and explaining the matter to us, to the church at Corinth and now today to us, it's still God's holy and inspired word that must be respected. For to the rest, I say. So who is going to question the word of an inspired apostle, the apostle Paul? Now the reason I emphasize that just a little bit there is because there are some who want to say, erroneously so, 
that this is not inspired Scripture, that this is just good advice. That's not good advice. This is God's inspired Word. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. I'm in verse 13. This naturally would have to happen. What are we going to do about these mixed marriages whereby a Christian marries a non-Christian? Is it legitimate for a Christian to marry a non-Christian? Well, if his Christian marries a non-Christian, are they to separate? Now, I'm a Christian. Here, we were pagans. I saw the need to be baptized into Christ. My spouse would not be baptized into Christ because he or she is a pagan. Well, what do we do about that? Should they separate? The answer is no. You are married to your spouse. Even though the spouse is a Christian and you are not or you are and she is not or he is not, that is no grounds for you to withdraw yourself from your wife and the marital relationship. She is still your spouse. He is still your spouse. And let me tell you why Paul says. Because religious incompatibility is not a grounds for dissolving a marriage. It is not. Now, a lot of times people will come to me about that kind of situation, and I'll say, well, what about just because you're incompatible religiously does not affect the integrity of the marriage union. Marriage is a divine institution for the entire human family, whether this person was a pagan prior to become a Christian or not. They're still married in the sight of God. Now, let me tell you something very carefully, and I'm speaking to some younger people tonight. You make sure that the one you are going to marry is the one you need to marry. You make sure this is the one. Because when you say, before God and witnesses, I do, you're making a lifelong commitment to the other and to God and the community. Now, simply because it is an easy thing to get out of a marriage. Well, let me tell you this. It's a lot easier to get into marriage than it is to get out of one, legally speaking. It's looked upon as a breach of contract, and then that means the resolution of problems and property and the uh, disillusionment of property and children enter into the picture, and it's a terrible thing. The Old Testament prophet said, God hates divorce. And I understand exactly where he's coming from there. It is something to be hated and dreaded. But simply because we have some kind of religious incompatibility here does not undermine the integrity of the divorce. And you make sure that when you select somebody, <clears throat> that you're selecting them with the understanding that they understand. This commitment is for life. And I'm going to bring that point up in a minute. Make sure you're marrying the right person. And so you're going to ask me the question, well, who's the right person going to be? The right person is the person that's going to help you go to heaven. That's the right person. It's not the most beautiful. It's not the most handsome. It's not the most wealthy. It's not the most this. It's not the most that. The right person for you is the person that's going to help you go to heaven. That's your purpose anyway. Your purpose here in this life is to so live your life like Jesus Christ that you will go to heaven based on your obedient faith to the gospel. 
and your living of the Christian life. Everything else, let me say it again, everything else is secondary to going to heaven. If you have something else in mind, you've got the wrong goal in life. Now, it's good to have goals in life. Please don't misunderstand me. It's good to have aspirations and ambition and all of that's very important. That God gave us these particular wonderful matters and we utilize them, but we do so for His glory and we do so in light of eternity. You consider the right one who's going to help you go to heaven, help you when you're wrong, encourage you, and point out those mistakes. You're helping her or him, encouraging them, helping them understand what God wants them to do based on God's holy and inspired word. The fact of the matter is, at our present point in 12 and 13, simply because one is married to a non-Christian, does not dissolve the marriage. Well, what about the children that are born under such a union? There's nothing wrong with those children. And that's the point that he brings up. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, or she consents to live with, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. That does not mean they're automatically saved because an unbeliever married a believer. It simply means now that there's greater chance of that Christian spouse inspiring, motivating, teaching that unchristian spouse to become a child of God. And so now they live in a better relationship especially in the light of the fact that this person now learns the gospel by the good conduct and teaching of the faithful Christian spouse. Just because a non-believer marries a Christian, this passage is not saying they're saved. It's simply saying that they live in a better conducive type of situation where there's greater opportunity to learn about the gospel. Same thing is true with regard to the children. And so he makes the point, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. He's talking about the children now have a better environment in which to live because there's a Christian spouse there that they can be taught and trained and see the example of a Christian mother, whoever it might be, or a Christian father, whoever it might be in that particular family. And that's the point that he's dealing with. Because marriage is to be a peaceful, loving, enriching type of relationship. But if the unbeliever believing party separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now here's the troublesome passage. It's in verse 15. I'm in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. I spent all this time talking about the background so that I could really have a good understanding of what I'm dealing with with regard to this matter of the unbelieving departs. Let me say in the beginning, simply because this unbeliever departs does not give the believing party the right to divorce and remarry. It is not an additional excuse or reason to divorce and remarry. Some brethren have missed that particular point. They've tried to say, well, if the unbelieving departs, she free, he or she's free to marry somebody else again. No. No. 
The point is that word enslaved. Now, I noticed it used in verse 15, the English Standard Version, enslaved. I kind of like the way it translates that word there. Some will use the word bondage or bound. But this is a unique word which the Apostle Paul is using in this particular passage. It's not one that we see refers to marriage. This particular word, and excuse me now, but I have to do this in order to get the gist of what's going on in verse 15. The word bondage is deluotai. Now I know that that doesn't probably mean anything, but it's a perfect passive type of word, a verb there. And technically speaking, it is saying not now and never has been in that kind of bondage. This does not refer to marriage. In fact, as I began to look that word up and I ran it down, de, de luotai, it never refers to marriage. However, in English, you're going to find the word bound or bond or uh, that kind of thing that does, but it's a different word. So now with that understanding, I'm going back to the word enslaved. Let it be so, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. And it's really showing in that particular passage that this brother who's a Christian, this sister who's a Christian, and their spouse who is now leaving them for whatever reason it might be, you're not enslaved to maintain that relationship at the expense of giving up Christ. Now, you're still married. They may go, they may leave, but you're still married. You say, but I have no control of That's correct. You're still married and they're still married to you. Because marriage is not dissolved by separation. That's not another reason for divorce and remarriage. The um, word enslaved here is referring to the idea that, if I might illustrate it this way, spouse comes up to me and says, you know, it's either me or Christ. You make the decision which way is it going to go? You either love me and be my husband or, and give up Christ, or I'm leaving. Now, what am I supposed to do? 1 Corinthians 7 15, you choose Christ, but you're still married. Even though that person may get up and walk out the door, which is a sinful thing to do, a brother or sister is not enslaved, not under duress, not under bondage, however the word is translated in your translation. If a spouse comes to you and says, it's either me or Christ, if you pick Christ, it's the highway, and in that situation, I have to pick Christ. I'm not to be under that kind of bondage in that particular way. Now, I have to admit, I had background and help in studying these particular matters. And one of the men that I'd have to give credit to is Dr. Harvey Floyd. If Dr. Harvey Floyd said something, I would stop and listen to it. He's the finest Greek scholar I ever studied under. And Dr. Floyd was a fine Christian man. And when asked this particular question years ago, I wrote his answer down. And here it is. Paul uses de lutlotai in 1 Corinthians 7, 15, because he wishes to say that for a Christian to yield to pressure to give up his Christianity, to preserve his marriage, would mean slavery of the most abject kind. 
The Christian must never consider himself in such bondage. That's how the word bondage is being used, this special kind of word. <clears throat> now, this word comes up in other contexts and in other matters, and so I want to be sure that you and I understand that uh, particularly because this word's going to come up in verse 27. So let me look at the word, and I'm talking about the word bond or bound. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 27, and you are bound to a wife. But it's a different Greek word. This word that we're looking at in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and 15 is not a word that refers to marriage. It refers to abject slavery. And you're not to be put into a situation where you have to decide the spouse or Christianity. If so, you choose Christ, but understand you're still married. You're not divorced from that particular person. Deo in 727 is a different word that does refer to marriage. Let me fall on down here, slip on down to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and the verse is verse 39. And I might as well go ahead and talk about verse 39 while I'm at this point. Somebody said, well, Brother Laws, I don't understand all about this Greek stuff. I don't understand. I never studied Greek. I wasn't raised in Greece. I was raised in Texas or Tennessee, and I don't understand. You don't have to. You don't have to understand all of it. When we get real technical about it and we're really looking at digging in as deeply as we can, we're going to look at these words and how they relate to each other and what they mean and what they meant to Paul and that kind of thing at the time of writing. You say, but I don't understand all that kind of thing. I understand that. You don't have to. Look at 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. That's it. You go to 1 Corinthians 7 and 39. And if you got a question about this particular matter, you go to 1 Corinthians 7 39 and you see what the principle is there. That a husband and a wife are bound to each other as long as they live. There is an exception it's found in Matthew chapter 5 and 32, 1, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Romans chapter 7, Matthew chapter 19, 9. That's not really our point tonight, though we discuss that from time to time. If you want to know the biblical view of marriage and God's principle for marriage, you have it here, 1 Corinthians seven thirty nine. Husband and wives are bound together as long as they live. With one exception, the marital unfaithfulness of one spouse and the innocent victim, the other spouse, may remarry. They may put that individual away, the unfaithful spouse, and contract another marriage, involve themselves in another marriage. That's Matthew chapter 19, 9, Matthew chapter 5, 32. They'd have to be an innocent party. They didn't cause the divorce. They, in turn are free to marry if they're innocent. So that would cause us to boil this down to the following three. Who may marry? Those who've never married before. They may get married. Two, those who have married but their spouses have died. That's Romans 7. If a spouse has died, they may remarry. Three, those who have married 
but their spouse has been maritally unfaithful, sexually unfaithful to them, and they themselves an innocent party in that matter, may put that spouse away and remarry. Matthew 19 and 9 and Matthew 5, 32 and 33. People come to me about uh, marriage and marriage relationships and talk about this and talk about that. And what about this and what about that? I just send them to 1 Corinthians 7, 39. And I tell them, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord. Now, i got another textual difficulty here. Only in the Lord. And so I've got another minute or two, so I think I'll deal with it. Only in the Lord. Now, I have established the point that marriage is for life. I've established the point from the pages of the Scripture that marriage has one exception. The marital unfaithfulness of the spouse and the innocent party may contract or enter into another marriage. If one spouse dies, they may remarry. But now, what about this widow? Now, this widow had a husband. She died. He died. Can she marry again? Well, he's already established that point, verses 10 and 11. She can remarry. But now he tells us something only in the Lord. Some gospel preachers have been real hard on this point, and they've said, well, only in the Lord means she can only marry a Christian. If you have a widow or widower, the widower, widow or widower can only marry a Christian. But I don't think it says that. I think what he's saying here is, and let me say it a little stronger, I know what he's saying. He's saying if she does remarry, She's got to marry according to God's divine law of marriage. And let, please forgive me once again, but I've got to go into the original language, and I've got to analyze this and see how he wrote that and, and how he meant that. Because Paul uses only in the Lord as an adverbial modifier. You're going to know what in the world? A modifier helps me understand the phrase or the clause or the word that is modified. It helps me know more about it. it. I could have an adjectival modifier that modifies a noun or a pronoun. I could have an adverbial modifier that modifies a verb, an adjective, or another adverb. And I've got to figure out just exactly how this only in the Lord what it is modifying. Let's well, modifying this point about marriage here. The verb. Be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Marry according to God's divine principles. Marry according to God's divine will. Marry according to God's divine teaching on marriage. Now, if you want to say it means only a Christian, then you're making this adverbial modifier into an adjectival modifier, in which case it would be modifying the man she marries. But it's not modifying the man she marries. It's modifying the marriage. What she as a widow is going to do. Adverbial modifier. Somebody comes along and says, Jim, I don't know anything about that. I don't know anything about modifiers. I don't, I, 
I wouldn't know the difference between an adverb and an adenoid. How am I supposed to understand these particular matters? Turn to Revelation 14, 13. You don't have to. The Bible is always the best interpreter of itself. In Revelation 14, 13, you have exactly the same phraseology as we have in this particular passage uh, at the present. And here in this... Um, uh, passage of Scripture. He's saying about these particular people, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. It's a beautiful passage, isn't it? He's talking about, and there's no other alternative here but to say that those who die in the Lord are dying with the Lord's favor. They're dying with the Lord's blessing. They're dying with the Lord, being blessed by him. And that's our word here. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Now that's the same phraseology that I have here in my Romans, my 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 39. Now there's more I'd like to say about this. You've been very patient and you've been very kind to listen to me and I appreciate it very much. I'm dealing with a big subject here and I'm thankful for the question. Thank you for asking this question. And I've tried to be as thorough with it as I possibly could and deal with every particular point involved in this passage. But I think you can hang your hat on 1 Corinthians seven thirty-nine. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. That's God's principle of marriage. Marriage is for life. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry to whom she wishes. She can marry whom she wishes, but in the Lord. Do it according to God's divine will. In effect, what he's saying, the advice and inspired direction he gives to the widows, he's giving to everybody. Marry according to God's divine principle of marriage, which you and I have discussed and are clear about for the present. Well, our time is gone. I certainly didn't exhaust the matter by any means. Uh, there's more that probably should be said on, on this particular issue. You know, it reminds me of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. There's that phrase again. Uh, it needs to be considered very carefully in light of what we're saying. And so let's summarize just very briefly what we've learned here tonight. That marriage is instituted by God. That marriage has been given divine direction by God. And that to be pleasing in the sight of God, we're going to have to follow God's divine will in the matter. I'm not considering the laws of the state of Texas or California or Tennessee or any other state. Those, those have to be complied with. Still, what I'm interested in is the law of God. And the law of God is saying, your marriage is a lifelong commitment. It is an enriching environment of peace and love whereby we as husbands and wives rear children so that they may go to heaven and we all be there together. That's the desire. And God knew that it was not good for man to be alone.
God knew that this was the best way for a family to enrich itself spiritually and in turn become the kind of people God really wanted them to be here on earth so that they could be with God in heaven. And let me tell you something. You want God on your side now so that he will be on your side when you die. You want to be on God's side and you want to do whatever God has told you to do so that you will have God with you on your side when you die and you live this, leave this life. And that's what's going to happen. To do that, you must be obedient to the gospel of Christ and repent of sin and confess faith in Jesus Christ. Be baptized in water for forgiveness, Acts 2 verse 38. And continue to live the faithful Christian life. And then in turn, when this life is over, and it will be soon, sooner than we realize, for this one or for that one, each of us will cross over that bar and, as Shakespeare once said, shuffle off this mortal coil and we will face him in judgment. And we have to be ready. And I urge you to do that tonight by becoming a faithful Christian. And do it now while together we stand and while we sing. Would you live for Jesus and